Welcome to the U.S.-China Dialogue podcast from Georgetown University. This podcast series explores diplomacy and dialogue between China and the United States during the four decades since normalization of relations in 1979. We'll hear from former ambassadors, cabinet secretaries, and White House advisors who will share how they shape the course of the most complex relationship in international diplomacy today. I'm your host, James Green. Today on the podcast, we talk with Gao Xiqing. When countries have money, a lot of money, and they're looking for returns for some of that cash beyond low-yield U.S. treasuries, one option is to establish a special fund for that money. Norway, endowed with significant oil revenue from the North Sea, set up its sovereign wealth fund in 1990 to manage that windfall. Singapore and Abu Dhabi established their sovereign wealth funds even earlier. By the mid-2000s, China's foreign trade surpluses had accumulated to such an extent that authorities decided to establish a professionally managed sovereign wealth fund, called simply the China Investment Corporation. Today, the CIC has about $1 trillion under management, invested in projects and companies around the world. Back in 2007, when the fund launched, the Chinese leadership tapped a securities lawyer to become the CIC's first president. Gao Xiqing was a natural choice. He studied law at Duke University, had worked on Wall Street, then, upon returning to China, became a guiding force inside the Chinese government just as the country was launching its own stock markets. The China Investment Corporation was, in some ways, the natural result of global macroeconomic and financial forces, signaling Beijing's maturation as an international power. But it is not without controversy. For some, the China Investment Corporation represents many worrying parts of an assertive Chinese economic system. Senator Marco Rubio raised such concerns in a May 2018 speech on the Senate floor, introducing a bill called the Fair Trade with China Enforcement Act. The third problem we have is that China, and I mean China both its sovereign wealth management and individuals that have made a lot of money directed by government in many cases, has gone on a buying spree of U.S. debt, meaning treasuries, of stocks, even of real estate. My hometown of Miami is one of the places that's being heavily invested in now to increase their trade surplus and to weaken the U.S. economy. But before he was at the commanding heights of Chinese finance, Gao Xiqing spent his youth during the Cultural Revolution digging train tunnels and working in a factory in mountainous Shanxi province. His life's journey offers a fascinating portrait of a China that moved from an isolated and impoverished backwater to an international and cosmopolitan powerhouse. Gao Xiqing, thanks so much for taking time today. I really appreciate it. Great to see you again. Um, Before getting to your time uh, in different parts of the Chinese government, I wanted to talk uh, about your schooling and, and your education. Tell us where you're from and how you ended up at Duke Law School in the mid 1980s. Well, I'm um, from Xi'an, which is a very old city in the middle of China. And um, when I was growing up, uh, the Cultural Revolution broke out. And then there was no schooling for some years. And then, uh, then I got a chance to go build a railway, a railroad. And um, I thought that was a great opportunity because the, the only option, the other option was to go to the, the farms. 
my sister was already on the farms and the life was very difficult there, not enough food, everything. So I thought, well, go to the railroad and became a worker and got a salary. So I thought it was a great idea. But little did I know that uh, life there was actually a lot harder than working on the farms because we never had enough to eat. Food was rationed. You know, if you listen to the ration itself, it's 45 jin per month. Mm -hmm. and that was that's about 45 about, pounds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's about the, the highest in China in those days. But if you have only grain for 45 jin, and then you have no, no oil, no meat, no you know, protein, and then, then you, and with very hard labor now, I felt I could eat about three times that much each month. So basically for those three years, about every day I felt um, hungry. And sorry, what years were those? That was in 1970. Uh, I went there, uh, that was before, two months before I was 17. And uh, went uh, all the way to, to about uh, April, May of 1973. And was this in Shanxi province or somewhere farther away? In Shanxi, in southern tip of Shanxi province, in the, deep in the mountains there, in the mountains of uh, uh, Sichuan, Shanxi, and Hubei three provinces, we were in the middle of that, digging tunnels and breaking up the rocks and doing all that sort of thing. So I, I had an injury there. And uh, now today I still have a certificate for third degree disabled soldier. Wow. You know, it's a concussion on the head. And uh, I always um, blame my um, you know, tardiness and my slowness to that uh, accident. <laughs> So, and at that time, what was the equipment you guys were using? Well, um, we we had uh, spades, we had the hammer, we had you know, we had those things. But for some time, we had some sort of equipment. They 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 I think they imported some uh, some sort of uh, uh, equipment. But then we decided that it was too slow. This machine was slower than man, and they they said no. We everyone wants to do good for the revolution, so we throw away the machine. We still did our with our hand. So um, most so, of the time, was all, everything was by hand. Yeah. Uh, have you been back? Did you guys finish the tunnel, or did you make progress in the tunnel? No, we basically finished everything. By the time we came back in 1973, the, the, the railway was about to complete. So we about uh, half a year after we came back, the whole um, railway was completed. That, that that's Xiangyu uh, line from Chongqing to mm -hmm. uh, Xiangfan, which is about 890 kilometers of a uh, railway, with probably just a few miles of uh, railway tracks laid on flat land. The rest of it's bridges and tunnels. Huh. And it's just deep, deep in the mountain. And have you ridden on that line? No. Well, <laughs> well, that's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. I went back there about. Um, I think three, four years ago, we just to look at that place. But uh, we, we drove from Xi'an. As today on the superhighway, it's only about you know less than three hours drive there. But at that time when we got there, we we, we had a whole bunch of kids, uh, you know, on sitting on open trucks. It took us two days to get there to drive. Oh, yeah. Wow. wow. And so. You came back to Xi'an in 1973. And, and then became a bench worker in an artillery factory making machine guns. And our machine guns were all sent to the Vietnamese. And later, of course, we found them uh, using that against us. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> Very <laughs> interesting life <laughs> jokes. So. Right. Um, and so then you went to college here in China? In Beijing, then in 1974, late 1974, um, they, they, I got a chance to go to college in Beijing. You know, at that time, there was no national exams. Um, because they, they say exams are bad for the proletariat. So we're all proletariat. So they, we don't have a free election, sort of free. They, we were recommended by the workers. So my workshop was the largest in the factory. We had 44 workshops in that factory. Mine was the largest because we, we were mechanics. We fixed machines for every other place. So we know more people in the factory. So I got more votes. So they sent me in. So um, I went there for three and a half years. In at that time, it was called Beijing Institute of Foreign Trade. Mm -hmm. Today is the University of International Business and Economics. Right. Which at that time was affiliated with the Ministry of Commerce. Yes. Mm -hmm. At that time, it was called a Ministry of Foreign Trade. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so then you graduated and started working. Well, I was in 1978, January 78. We, we, uh, I graduated. At that time, everyone was assigned a job. Mm -hmm. You're not allowed to, to really choose your job. So they, they said, well, you came from a military industry, so you have to go back to military industry. They sent me back to Xi'an. And that factory was built by the Russians. So I said, well, all the materials were in Russian. I said, I studied the English. What's the use of this? They said, OK, we find a place for you to use English. So they sent me to a research institute. It's a computer research institute which uses uh, English, and I, I was sent to the information um, office where they, we, I, I, I have to translate all these materials that they, I don't know, stole from uh, the West. So <laughs> we could uh, translate that. I was there, there only for half a year because in March of 78, the Central Committee decided that we need to uh, restore graduate studies. So that was the first year for graduate school to open. So I, I took an exam. I got number one in the national uh, wow. exam. So I got in. Oh. Oh. So then, <clears throat> um, you, how did you end up in Duke as the place to go to law, law school? Well, after three years of uh, studies uh, of law at, uh, at the institute, uh, they, at the time the rule says, the national rule was that if you have studied in the university or you know or all the graduate school, you have to serve for the country for at least two or three years before you can go anywhere. And so I thought I was, you know, I, they, they decided to to have me teach in that school. And then within a few months, they said, oh, you need to go to the US. I, I didn't know why. Later I found out it's because by, by 1980, I was in early 1982, you know, late 1981, all of a sudden law becomes a, important subject, you know, because, you know, before that, nobody really, you know, cared about the law. Yeah, I was going to ask, sorry, when you were studying law, how many lawyers would you estimate were in China in the early 1980s? No, <laughs> no, no. My, this is my teacher, uh, Mr. Shandaming, who died a few years ago at 96, and he, he, he has a doctorate in law from, from you know, France, and a very substantial legalist and taught for many years, but after um, the revolution, he served as the uh, legal uh, legal advisor for the Ministry of Foreign Trade, the equivalent of Foreign Trade, in 1951, up until 1954, and then all the legal professions were banned. 
he always joked with me. He said, you know, you know the oldest profession in, uh, for human society. I said, I know. He said, we're the second oldest. <laughs> and so that's why in 1953, 54, we were the second to be passed. <laughs> you know, after prostitution. After prostitution. So he, he, he was sent to the university to teach French language for all those years, wow. up until 1978. Mm -hmm. And then they found him and they said, okay, now you, you need to teach law. And he said, oh, well, I need someone. They, they need uh, one student. He said, I, I don't expect anyone with any pre-knowledge, but I need someone whose English is good enough. Because my English was, a, was a, at that time, comparatively was good enough. Uh, because I scored number one, so he said that he wanted me. I said, no. And the first one he talked to me, I said, no, I don't want to study law. He said, oh, law is important. I said, I don't, I don't think it's important. My father was in jail for five years, got in without any trial, got out without any explanation. I said, where's the law? And then this is the school, um, the, the president of the school, and he said, you know, times are different now. The party really stresses on the law. I said, well, let someone else study it. What did you want to study? I, macroeconomics. Mm -hmm. I, I applied, I got in on that subject. Mm -hmm. At that time, it was not called macroeconomics. It was called the critique of a bourgeois economic theory. <laughs> so, so I studied that for a few months. We only have about 30 books. By the end of a few months, I finished all the books. And then they came back to me again. At first, they, you know, because I refused, they, they chose the number two, as a, a lady went there. And then when my book finished, I became interested in what she was studying. I asked her, she told me, and I thought it was interesting. So I went to their class, I listened to the, uh, to the lectures, and I said, oh, well, this is interesting. So in a month, then they came back and said, no, uh, the ministry said we need another law student. The one is not enough. So they came to me again this time. I said, okay, I'll try that. That's how I got in. <laughs> so fascinating. And so then they came to you and said, "You need to go to the U.S." Yeah, that and that that time the the reason later I found out the reason why was because by that time every ministry, the Supreme Court, People's Congress, everyone wanted me. They said because they you know say people are still you know they were they were still prejudices about uh, the, the lady they don't want. They said we want we want a man, and they there's only two, there are only two law students so. Everyone wanted me to go. And the school got nervous and said, well, no, we want him to teach. They said, no, 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 no. We, we really need the person to be so fine. And also the, the uh, state council um, legal department, everyone wanted. So they said, okay, just go, go to the states <laughs> so that they won't get you. That's how I, I was sent. To, by that time, the, uh, Graham and James's law firm had an exchange. They wanted uh, the school to take one of their lawyers to teach in the school. In fact, it was not ready to teach because they needed someone to work on the first joint venture hotel, Jianguo Hotel. Uh-huh, sure. And, wow. But at that time, China would not allow any foreign lawyer to be in China in a capacity of a lawyer. Mm -hmm. So they say, well, I'm a professor. Mm -hmm. And they actually worked for, for you know, this person, Clement Chen, on that uh, project. So they sent me there for a year as an exchange. But during that year, of course, during the first few months, I already found out that my, my knowledge of English and law were both totally inadequate to deal with American lawyers. So I said, oh my God, I need to study more. So I talked to the lawyers, they, they all told me, I said, no, 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 if you want to study law, study, start from the JD, not the LLM. I, I had no idea what it was for. They said, 
you you need to have the basic thing because uh, common law is so difficult that you know studying for one year or even go SJD for a few years it's not enough. You have to start from scratch. So so I told the school I said I wanted to study here. They said no. Uh, come back if you want to get a doctor's degree. Your 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 paper for the master's degree was very substantial enough. We expanded, we give you a doctor. I said no, no, it's not the degree I want. I really want to study American law. So, so at that time, um, they the school finally said, well, we don't have uh, uh, money. Um, you, if you can get a scholarship, you can go. Then I tried. Then Duke offered me full scholarship. And so at that time, Duke was. I mean, it has quite a international reputation and quite a good domestic reputation in the U.S. But at that time, my sense is it was still a bit of a small southern school kind right. of cloistered. How was it as a Chinese student to show up there and start going to class? How were you seen and how did you kind of well, see your classmates? Well, the, the first class, I, I, I drove from uh, Los Angeles to Duke. Wow. And I had a huge detour. I went up to San Francisco and then to the, you know, the Grand Teton. They, uh, you know, they, they, Yellowstone, Batland, took me 18 days wow. to get there. So I, I, I arrived there only one day before the class started, and I had absolutely no idea about American law schools. So I didn't have the sense to go to the bulletin to look at, you know, what was required. So I went in the class. First class in the morning was property. <laughs> I went in. I look around. I said, everyone else had, had a huge case book and the yellow pad there. I said, how come I don't have it? And they said, oh, you need to buy it in a bookstore. I said, oh, uh, but how do I, how do you know you need to buy it? So I said, look at the bulletin board. So for the first class, I had nothing. Because in China, every first class is, you know, uh, you know, what you need to do, we give you the books, we give you the, you know, all these things. So, but for the first class, I understood zero. The property class, right? And the the, the professor was a uh, southern uh, uh, general, gentleman, uh, uh, a retired Marine Corps general, and he's you know he's he's accent already. I I just couldn't understand. Then the, you know the, everything else is just totally foreign to me. I got so discouraged. And after class, I went up to him. I said, "Can I uh, tape record your class?" He said, fine, if you want to. So I immediately I went to the store. In that time, I was on scholarship, but you know, I didn't have really very much money, but I said, I, I had to had to invest this $100 to buy a recorder. I did that only for about two weeks before I gave up, because you know, those classes, for every hour of recording, you need about two, three hours to, to listen to it. And then, you know, those, I had about two, three hours sleep every day. So after a few weeks, I said, oh my God, <laughs> forget it. <laughs> so once you got the language issues, were the conceptual issues of property just kind of different from what you had studied in oh, law totally here? Totally different, totally. It's so far, you know, American property law is so different even from the European continental law, even from the English property law. It's so arcane and so complicated. And with all of these uh, um, ancient French, uh, Latin, uh, written in it, ah, it's, that was really bad. So, but you survived, and yeah, you, survived. you finished <laughs> finally. Um, and then, how did you end up at um, Mudge Rose, Nixon's old law firm? Yeah, well, that was uh, I. I really I, I thank Mr. Nixon a lot 
but of course not just Mr. Nixon, because uh, at that time the law school dean was uh, uh, Paul Carrington. He he called them. He wanted us to. He wanted them to take a Chinese student there, and they had. The, they said, "Okay, we we you know because of Richard Nixon." They said, "Okay, we can take them." So in today for one L first uh, year law students, it's very difficult to get a summer job, but they just you know they said, "Okay, we can." So first year I, I worked there. Second year summer, I went to. I, I thought I needed to go to a different place, so I um, I went to Kudera um, uh, Brothers. Kudera, yeah, today it's no sure. longer there. Yeah, it was huge. Kudera um, at the time was a very important international firm, and because uh, I, I want I, I wanted to to come back to this part of the world. In those days, there were no phones, nothing. So finally, um, they 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 said they, they can send me to their Hong Kong office. So I was elated. So I went to Hong Kong uh, for that those three months for Kudir, and third year, and uh, I you know I went back to Montrose because they they had they say no strings attached because for every other law firm, which you know wanted to have me, they all said, well you need to work for us at least for five years, and they asked me I said well I I can only work for one year before I go back. They said no one year no way because for the first two three years, you are exploiting us. After that, we can start exploring you. <laughs> so, <laughs> so then you came back uh, to China in 1988. Did you have a specific job that you were slotted for when you came back? Yes, I because for the whole time I was still affiliated to the uh, to the uh, UIB yeah, University. University. Mm -hmm. They always they, they retain that uh, place for me. That's also why I worked in Montrose only for two years because if I work longer than uh, they would, I would be regarded as a defector, mm -hmm. and I wouldn't do that. So at first, I decided to work only for one year. So a few months, about two, three months before the first year finished, I told the partners, "I thought, okay, bye, I, I'm going back," and they said, "No, no, no, one year is not enough. You have to work there longer." I said, "No, I can't." Because I, I don't want to be regarded as a defector. And then they said, well, maybe we should write them. This is more important for you guys, for your country, not for us. Uh, they were basically saying I'm useless for them, but for China it would be very useful. So I said, but they won't understand it. And this, this guy was hurt because he's a very famous um, you know, Wall Street lawyer. He, he, I said, if you write them a letter, they, you know, they don't want they, 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 they don't them. And then he said, what about Mr. Nixon if he writes a letter? I said, oh, that may uh, you know, get some <laughs> attention. He immediately picked up his phone, called Mr. Nixon, and Mr. Nixon gracefully wrote a very long letter for me, wow. sent to the Minister of uh, Foreign Trade, mm -hmm. Mr. Li Lanqing, mm -hmm. who later oh, became sure. senior yeah. vice premier, wow. mm -hmm. and said, said, wow, this is important for you guys. This guy is smart, and this guy is... He's as good as an American lawyer. You know, he said all the nice things. And then he said, well, I suggest that you allow him to, to work here for five years before he goes back. And then, they, of course, they hesitated for a while. After about a month or two, they sent back. They said, okay, thank you so much, Mr. Nixon. We can have him to work for another year. So that's how I worked for wow. two years. <laughs> and the, the Mudrod's idea was one year you just wouldn't even learn enough about the right. legal practice to really be right. able to come back and teach. Because they have a two-year program, 
six months each for four different departments to rotate. Mm -hmm. For two years, I rotated uh, four departments, which is, was really helpful mm -hmm. for so me. So corporate or yeah, uh, transactions? tax, tax uh, mm -hmm. uh, debt, mm -hmm. and all that. So, so that was uh, very useful. Mm -hmm. um, so can you talk a little bit about moving from there to the um, China Securities Regulatory Commission, how you ended up there, and then what, what, what you were supposed to be doing? You know, when, when I was in, in the U.S., uh, something drastic happened. I think in 1987, October 1987, was the, probably the, the biggest uh, financial crisis after the 1930s. So um, at the time, you know, to me, of course, it's something interesting, but I never thought that, was, that had anything to do with China. But then the Chinese government got really interested. They, they asked me to, to go there to give them a talk and to, to the embassy. They said, we want to know what impact that will have on China. I said, I don't think there will be any impact on China. You know, 87, we had very little interaction. But then that, you know, they, they were really interested. All these people and the, and the Chinese media people there, you know, at that time, People's Daily, Red Flag, Peking Review, you know, others, uh, Oak Guards. And, and then they all wanted us to talk to them. There were only a handful of Chinese people working on Wall Street. Myself as a lawyer, uh, Mr. Wang Boiming as the economist at the New York Stock Exchange, and uh, Leo Arfei at Goldman Sachs, just a few of us. So, so we decided, well, maybe we should have a bigger lecture for all these Chinese people interested. And then in Columbia, in, I was in November of 1987, we had a big conference, had about two, three hundred people, all very vastly interested in it. So then we, we then the, of course, the idea came hitting upon us and said, well, maybe we should suggest to the Chinese government for stock market. And then, because at that time we heard that China started to discuss it. But some in isolated cities and places, there were already um, stock uh, companies issued, but all in all sorts of forms. They all, you know, they, they call themselves Gopiao, you know, which is the you know, shares, stocks. But if you actually look at the, the thing, it's actually bonds. It's mm. guaranteed dividend to you at uh -huh. a certain percentage point. Mm -hmm. So we And thought, did it give you ownership rights or not really? No, really, not really. Mm -hmm. So you can you can see that that um, uh, that thing was you know heating up and people are really interested, but they had not they did not have enough knowledge uh, to do it. So, so the few of us got together. We said, "Well, maybe we should make a suggestion to the central government to set up the the Chinese stock market." So we we, we had a uh, bunch of people, including some American lawyers. Uh, you know, one lady from Madras, one from White and Case, and uh, one guy, Jim Shapiro from New York Stock Exchange, and all these people we we discussed, and then we we turned out. By the second year, by 1988, around May, we came up with what today is known as the white paper. <laughs> we, and then, then in August, uh, I went back to China after a big tour of Europe, stopping at every stock exchange. I went to all the stock exchanges in Europe. You know, just I, some of them I could know some people I have introduced. Some no, I just went up there saying, "Oh, I'm sorry, so I want to I want to visit your stock exchange." I want to set up a Chinese one. So they were they were vastly interested. Uh -huh. So we I got a lot of materials, lugged them back to Beijing in you know early September, and then immediately we got a lot of interest in China. We by that time there were already some people in China who were 
you know, doing it. So we got together immediately. Now that includes Mr. Wang Qishan, mm -hmm. uh, Mr. Zhou Xiaotuan, Mr. Zhang Xiaobin, all these people. They were, they were all at the you know, forefront of the reform. And they already did a lot in, you know, in financial area in other places. So we got together, we really you know, felt that it was a, a great idea to work together. And at that time, the idea for a Chinese equity market was for state ownership to become more public, or was it for listing new firms, or was it kind of a blended idea? Well, we, our, our idea is this, because when we first started, especially when we came back, when we started talking to the leadership, the people, you can imagine, you know, the sort of, a, the sort of a surprise, sometimes even the sort of dignity, the, 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 the anger that we could arouse. You know, I, I remember very vividly a few people, I won't name them because you would know, but this person said, you know, the slap on the, on the on table said, don't try to do capitalism in my hand. You know, they, they, they really, some people are like that, but other people. So for them, a stock market equals capitalism, which was yeah, evil. Yeah, mm -hmm. they, they say that's, that's the worst part of capitalism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, but more people than not said, well, it's, that's interesting, let's talk about it. So we, you know, we, eventually we got more and more people. And then that's how we invented all these sort of a, sort of a, uh, beating the bat bush sort of way mm -hmm. to, to persuade them. We, we wouldn't want to tell them straight, you know, this is what we want to do. We just say, well, you know, we have this, we call it gongjilun, which means uh, the, theory, mm -hmm. the theory of tools. We say, you know, in, in, a, in a revolutionary wars, uh, there are machine guns. The machine guns are, you know, the, 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 the white army can use them, the red army can use them too. So market is just a machine gun, okay? We, 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 we can use the machine gun, right? So we keep saying that. Eventually, more and more people accepted that. They said, okay, let's try that. And uh, that's why we, you know, we, we, today when people look back and said, well, these are strange ideas. I said, no, no, no. You have to use strange ideas to <laughs> persuade people. So. Well, um, I want to get to your time at uh, working at the, uh, the Bank of China International uh, as the chief executive officer, particularly uh, how the 97 financial crisis uh, affected your thinking about kind of equity markets. I think for a lot of Americans, the 97 financial crisis didn't register for them. It was kind of far away and in Asia. But I think for a lot of people in Asia, it was a very uh, kind of searing event of the challenges of managing equity markets and managing uh, currency flows. How did, from where you were sitting at that time, how did you see the financial crisis and what lessons did you take away from it? You know, I was probably at the middle of the, you know, we say the, at the eye of the typhoon, <laughs> the hurricane. And because uh, when, when, when it hit in September, I think in, uh, I think in was August of, uh, of 97, when, when we were uh, in Hong Kong and then um, Tiger Fund, the Quantum Fund, all these people started attacking the uh, both the, the stock market and the currency. And at the time, I you know I didn't know about that much. I, the only thing I knew that the market was really coming down. And then the central government, some people talked to the central government, and they said, "Well, we need to really support the Hong Kong government." Then the Hong Kong government people, the, the CEO and uh, and the, the financial. Um, secretary came to us and said that they needed us to help them. 
At the time, I had some doubt in me because I, I said, look, Hong Kong is regarded as the freest market in the world. If you try to interfere with it, then, you know, in the short run, it may, it may be good, but what about the long run? What, what if people lose confidence in the, uh, the you know, hands-off uh, policy of the government? They say, well, uh, that's, of course, that's our principle, but now it looks like it's really going to get really very bad. So we debated uh, for you know, many years after the when when uh, Donald Trump these people see they still they still say well do you still hold the same idea <laughs> they're going to tease with me so I I was uh, uh, in doubt but then I think Mr. Zhongji made the right decision he, he ordered us of us just uh, to prop up and just say okay just buy it so that day you know when the when the market really went down that one day. The average trading volume in Hong Kong is about 100, 200, uh, no, uh, 10 to 20 billion Hong Kong dollars each day. Uh, the highest they got was like uh, 30 something. That day, 80. And when I look at the number, I checked my, you know, bank account. Because we had four, four, they, they call it these four imperial cats, they call us. This is the, the, the writers call us that. The Bank of China was one of them. And of the four, Imperial cats, we got seventy-eight billion. You can imagine, you know, basically we're the only one buying, right? So, but today looking back, you know, it's a, it's probably it was something right. You, you know, you, and then you can say you know, people can always debate. But the thing is, once you prop it up, and then the more important thing is not what you did at the time, but what you did later. Because you, you know, in the mainland. Our market, we, that sort of thing happened several times when government got in. But you know, today you can see people have almost no uh, confidence in a government's hands-off policy because you know the government always got comes in. But Hong Kong did that once, and then with all those shares they bought in their hands, they immediately put it in a transparent fund. And then they then they say, well, this thing belongs to everyone. Every Hong Kong person has a share of it. They make it, you know, clean. But here we are still struggling with that. You know, they still have this. People call it this one hanging boot, mm -hmm. which is still hanging there. So moving to your time at um, China Investment Corporation, uh, uh, can I just ask, in two thousand seven, how did you end up? In that mix of people and kind of in that leadership position there, that's a that's a very interesting um, thing. I, I don't know if I can talk about it. I'm, I'm trying to think <laughs> because at the time I was working for the National Social Security Fund. Mm -hmm. You know, after a few years, second stint of my my uh, the you know, work at uh, CSRC, of course, I stepped on the toes of many people. People basically sum summarized to me and they said, "Well, you basically you." You antagonize six different groups of people. They they gave me they actually wrote it down, and I look at it, that's about everyone in China. So <laughs> so finally they got rid of me in uh, 2003, uh, and then then they put me on. They just said, well, we we don't know what to give you, and we we want to ask you what you want to do. I said, oh, um, I've been in the Communist Party for almost 30 years. Nobody ever asked me what I want to do. They, you always tell me what to do. Tell me now. <laughs> so, so, so they, they were, you know, I waited for about two months. During that two months, I learned how to snowboard. <laughs> <laughs> so one day when the, when, 
you know, Mr. Drew's uh, uh, assistant called me and said, what are you doing? Because he could hear the background music. I said, I'm on the ski slopes. He said, well, do you want to talk to the, to the big head and uh, complain? I said, no, 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 big head is very busy. Let him be busy. <laughs> I'll just do my stuff for him. <laughs> so finally, um, they, you know, I, they, they, finally they found, I worked together with those people on the, the establishment of the social security funds and said, well, maybe you're interested in that. I said, I can do anything. So they sent me there. And I think it's a very interesting job. I and, learned a lot. There. And the job was what? What was the what was the fund set up to do? And then what the, were you the doing there? The fund was set up as a reserve fund for national social security system, but it was really just a reserve fund. So it has nothing to do with the the uh, the uh, daily payment of the social security. So we it's just Mr. Drumji had that idea because he knew that the system, Chinese system, is such that if you don't take it out of the system, then the money, someone is going to come in and take all the money and you know, to man all the holes. So he, he had a very, very strong language. He said, whoever touches this, I'm going to get your head. So, so that was really, so I think I, I, every time I talked to him, I said, you guys should all thank Mr. Zhu for that because, you know, he single-handedly stopped everyone because during that time, you know, Mr. Xiang uh, who was the Minister of Finance, who later became the chairman of the Social Security Fund, he said one time they just couldn't balance the, the whole budget. And that was only only about 10, 10 billion yuan uh, whole. At that time, the Social Security Fund had only two, uh, 20 billion. He said, well, we can, we can move that here. And later we moved in. And Mr. Zhu just got, you know, really very angry. He said, no, nobody's going to touch that. So he, he was very impressed. He said, okay, <laughs> never he wanted to mention that again. So, so our job is to use that money and try to invest it so that we can keep the, uh, you know, keep, catch up with the uh, inflation. And then eventually, Mr. Zhu said, I'm not for me. I'm for the next, you know, ten generations. When those people come in, they have no money, and then they can dig into this to get into our social security. So now, you know, at the time from about ten to twenty billion now to way over a trillion, wow. way over a trillion. Now. And what were the vehicles that you all invested in, or how did you kind of figure out what? You well, I don't have, when I got in, it was already there for two years. During those two years, they. People there were, at first they were very nervous because Mr. Drew said you, you have to maintain the, the, the value. So they didn't want to invest in the stock market. They didn't want to invest in almost anything. They just they put it in the, uh, in the um, uh, T-bond, mm -hmm. only the treasury. And then Mr. Zhu told the chairman at that time, that was Mr. Liu Zhongli, who was a former finance minister. He said, you should buy some shares because this, at that time it, we, they just put in um, 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 petrol China and uh, China and uh, um, all these oil companies. The Sinopec. Sinopec, oh. right? He said you should talk to Mr. Gao and uh, ask him to get you some of the the, the original shares. That was being sold for one yuan for each piece, right? So and he has it. And he he called me. He said, "Oh, Mr. Zhu wanted me to talk to you about this." I said, "He already told me," and I'm I have. Two billion shares for you here, because everyone wanted it. I, I carved out two billion. I said, he said, no, 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 it's too much. I don't want that much. Give me a few million. I said, no, no, this is this is really important. 
So we negotiated. He, everyone else wanted more. He wanted less. So finally, he kind of have given one one billion wow. shares. And of course, that was the single largest investment that increased them. You know, they went up. By the time I got in there, it was already like three times that the, the money. So I saw Mr. Chu was, you know, he's, he, you know, he probably made some mistakes. People complain about him, but he's he's a wise person. He's he's has vision, long term vision. So speaking of long term vision, the um, uh, CIC was set up as a place for China to invest its sovereign wealth. Um, can you just talk a little bit about what the thinking was on the Chinese side, and then what you saw as your job, and then. What the obstacles were from people on the U.S. side and elsewhere, and how you kind of well, about the interesting that. thing is this: um, the CIC was set up really not that much out of you know, the free volition of our government. It was at first it was pretty much at the pressure of the United States and the Europeans, because you know those days you remember you know when we had meetings, uh, you know, every time we had meetings with the, with the West, and they always say, "Well, you guys are always studying to us, and you should buy something from us." They keep saying that, right? China, China's uh, uh, foreign reserve was like increasing very fast. By the time I got in, it was already over. Uh, you know, when they talk about it, it was already one trillion dollars. But by the time I got in, it was two trillion dollars, right? Just within two three years. So, so the state council had many meetings, talk about it, and some people say you should set up this thing just to just simply to invest in there. In, in, in the uh, Western market. That's how they finally uh, make it. And then uh, Mr. Lowe, who was the first chairman of CIC, he, he was among those that against this idea. He said it's not a good idea. But then, then later, when they decided to have it, it's okay, you'll be a chairman. <laughs> and, and up until then, sorry, was it uh, SAFE that was managing right. these investments? Right. Mm -hmm. So, sorry, Lo Chi Wei said, you're, you're right. going to manage this. Right. But they gave him only, you know, we, we got only a very small part from the safe, right? Safe was still uh, there. And then, then uh, Lo Chi Wei later told me that uh, uh, Mr. Wen, who was the premier, said, okay, find someone to uh, manage this thing. I, and I want someone who's, uh, uh, who has been in the system, loyal to us, and Worked for on Wall Street. So Joey said, "Well, that, that's only one person." <laughs> Mr. Wood said, "That's right." So he called me. He said, "Are you interested?" I said, "Does that matter if I'm interested?" <laughs> you know, you know, we we our interest never plays any role there. He said, "Well, just you know, come to me and talk." So I went. To, he was in the Forbidden City at the time. Was as the Deputy General Secretary of the State Council. So I went there. We talked for for a few days, and uh, then I found you know. At first, I said I'm I'm just pessimistic about it. I said you know this system. I know the system better now. It's not going to work. It's going to be very bureaucratic and all that. And he he said no. We are going to try to at least during our you know two of us, we are going to try to make it work. So we talked about a lot of principles. And later, you know, at least during our time, we basically, more or less, have stuck to those uh, principles. And you had mentioned dealing with uh, Americans and Europeans. How did you think you personally were seen and, and the CIC was seen when it was stood up and when it started to be more active on, on 
Well, when we first, one, as soon as we announced our establishment, you, you know, all of a sudden, every Western press was talking about it and said, this is dangerous, right? They said, my God, these people are going to come up and buy us up, you know. And, and then, then, of course, I got a lot of people coming to talk to me and um, they said, you guys, they must have some sinister, <laughs> you know, motives back there. So I had to, I, I did a lot of talk people I try to explain to people this is not our idea this is your idea we're buying you because you wanted us to buy you right so so, th so we did a lot of that and eventually since we, we we really reached out to try to talk to people so that quelled down a lot of these anxieties and, um, and also you know as soon as we set up you know, within less than a year the stock, stock market came down and uh, the, the financial you know, crisis and all that. So they, we were viewed as sort of a, almost a savior in some places. Quite a few of these major companies were saved the bass, and they were they were, they were even they were grateful even today. So, um, Kaoshi Ching just had an incredible personal history. Uh, thank you for sharing with me today. Uh, before we go, is there any kind of last bit of wisdom? You've been in both systems for for a long time. You've seen incredible amounts of change on this side and in the U.S. side. Anything to kind of share on kind of lessons learned in a in life, kind of uh, in uh, inside the Chinese system, but dealing with the United States. Well, I think the most important thing, you know, for us, the most important thing is that we. I I constantly tell our people, I mean, our leadership included, that. We have to keep an open mind. We have to to be willing to to learn their culture, to study their thing instead of constantly you know talking about our dogma. You know, we we were you know I said we're, we were brainwashed for too long. Um, that they, they they have their brainwashing machines, but their brainwashing machines a lot more effective than ours. Because you know, cause that, that's my experience. When I was in the U.S., I said, you guys, you know, when you look at CNN. Or you know, today, Fox News. You guys believe in it, and people, you know, how many people believe in what our you know CCTV tries to tell us? <laughs> so, so we need to we need to learn that. Uh, we need to um, to have patience to talk to people. We have to have to be willing to communicate with people. You know, some people just got got all of a sudden say, "Oh, we can say no now." I said, "You know, don't say no." You know, because I always use this. My parental, uh, you know, experiences. I said, you know, I've had three sons, and I had bad, bad experiences with every one of them. You know, because you know, you know, sons when they get to become teenagers, then they, they just, you know, they have their ideas. I said, never, never believe that you're smarter than your son. You know, they are, they are smart. You know, I, when I thought of myself, I, when I was a teenager, I thought I was smarter than all, you know my parents, everyone else. So you just have to learn, you know, how they do things. Today I have a lot better relationship because whatever they book they read I read. They, you know the video games they use I try to learn that video games even though I'm so bad. I still they, they they appreciate your you know your trying to communicate. You can't just stop communicating. And the same is true on the U.S. side. In the U.S. side, Americans are you know Americans are on the average much more straightforward and transparent, but a little bit. A little bit, how do I call it? You know, much simpler in in trying to deal with people. 
But you have to have parents. You know, the Chinese culture is such that perhaps a few thousand years of this, people try to hide what they want to say. So try to talk a little bit. You, if you ask them yes or no, they say, if they say no, then just ask them again. Ask them again, three times. That may be they change their mind, right? right. So we, should, we need to talk. We, we can't just, just throw up our hands and say, okay, I want to fight with you, right? <clears throat> well, thanks so much um, for your insights and for taking time today. Uh, Look forward to keeping in touch. Yes, yes, thank you. Gao Xiqing, speaking with me from Beijing. You've been listening to the U.S.-China Dialogue podcast from Georgetown University. I'm your host, James Green.